Let's turn back now to 1 John and chapter 2, and at the beginning of the chapter. 1 John 2, and at verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so on. Now, as we read the Bible, the Word of God, we see that God in different ways describes his people. Very much in the Old Testament, the people of God are the kingdom of God. We come into the New Testament and the people of God are disciples. They are the church of God called out by Jesus to follow him. And in these different ways, the word of God describes the church of God to us. Who are Christian believers? What are they like? And how are they connected to the Lord and to the Lord Jesus? It's clear as we read the first letter of John that his favorite idea with regard to the church is that of God's family. And we know as those who have families, we understand that there is a warmth, a tenderness and a care that we enjoy and experience in a family life and in family atmosphere. That's where we are nurtured. That's where we experience the goodness of God. It's a place where we enjoy love. And down through this letter, John is addressing those who are the children of God, those who are his own children, with the simple desire that they will know Jesus and have eternal life. But as we read through the letter, we do realize something that we see across the world in which we live. That is, we realize that this family is in some ways dysfunctional. We look across the world and we see a society that is, in many ways, itself dysfunctional. It's not functioning in the way that it ought to. It's not functioning in the way that God designed it to function. And because of that, it results in chaos. Whether it is in society morally or society politically or spiritually, there is so much dysfunction in the world that creates chaos for us every day. And nowhere is that of greater damage to, to, to the witness of the church of Jesus than when that dysfunction takes place within the church of Jesus itself. And, and we see through this letter that there are three particular things that show that this family, this church of Jesus, is functioning the way that it should they're very simple. The first one is, with regard to our knowledge of Jesus, that we recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord and he, the Son of God, has come into the world. The second thing is very practical, that we love each other. And the third thing is also very practical, that we live as we should live, that we live a life devoted to God and to Jesus. These are the three marks of a functioning family of God in the world. And in some ways, as we read through this letter, these are the things 
that were threatened and that were missing. And I want us to think about that today, not just collectively, but perhaps especially personally. What's our own relationship with God like? How does it function? Does it function at all? Or is there some kind of chaos in our lives because a relationship with God and a relationship with the Lord Jesus does not exist or has ceased to operate the way that it should? Personal, collective, but especially personal. And the aim of John through these verses and through these chapters is to, is to correct that is to help people adjust their lives and, and to take care so that they are living their lives with their focus on Jesus and with a faith exercised as it should, trusting in Him. I want to think, first of all, that we have in this passage a family conversation. Families just cannot operate unless we're conversing with each other. We must be talking to each other. And when we look at the family conversation that's taking place here, it has to do with a dysfunction in the family that's because of the presence of sin. And we read from verse 8 in chapter 1, and that's what we see. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In chapter 3, John reminds us that sin is lawlessness. The conversation has to be about our sin and our sinnership. And that sin can be present in a variety of ways. It can be present, first of all, simply in the way that I just don't believe. I refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus. That's the great sin that we refuse and we reject the Lord Jesus. The other possibility for sin is that we allow sin to interrupt our relationship with the Lord Jesus. And in our hearts we can perhaps know what that feels like. If it happens in our families outwardly, there is a breakdown. There is a breakdown in communication. Sin causes an interruption in my relationship with my Savior. And sin also causes a change in my lifestyle. That it brings about a life of disobedience. I lose my course, I lose my path, I lose my way. I am no longer living the way that the Lord Jesus wants me to live. And as we read through this passage again, we, we see that in different ways, people just do not accept their sinnership. They do not accept that they have sinned. And that's the problem from, from verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we have not sin, we make him a liar. You see, the seriousness of this issue to do with your sin and with my sin. I can stick my head in the sand and pretend I don't have sin. I'm deceiving myself. I can say I have no sin. I am actually accusing God of being a liar. Not only am I denying the truth, which is serious enough, 
But I am, I'm calling God to be a liar. I don't believe what God is saying to me. He is not telling me the truth. And that's a, a deception that Satan will use repeatedly in your mind and in mine. He will persuade you that the truth is that you don't have sin. And once he persuades you of that, it's your rejection of the truth that says you are a sinner and you have sin. And today, all of us together, all of us individually and personally have to embrace our sinnership, have to recognize that God in his word tells you and me that no one is righteous, no one is perfect, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And at the very outset of this time of worship, you and I must ask ourselves, what do we think about our sin? It is certainly true that intellectually, when I hear the word of God saying that I'm a sinner intellectually, I can say, yes, I accept that. That is a fact. But nevertheless, I can go on from accepting that fact without any change in my life. And down through the, the centuries and the generations of the church of Jesus, that has always been the case. There are those who will come to the gospel. They come because they say they are sinners and they believe Jesus is a savior and they go away and there is no change. Their intellectual acceptance of their sinnership does not descend any deeper into their beings. There is no evident change. And I'm sure there's no one in this building today who will say that they are not sinners. Otherwise you wouldn't be here. Intellectually you agree with what the word of God says. But how deep does that go? How does this family function? How do Christians have a conversation? What is the family conversation? And here it is. In verse 9. If we confess our sins. Admitting that we have done wrong, it certainly means that. But it means a lot more than that. It means that I'm taking the truth of God that speaks into my sinnership and I'm embracing that truth and I'm taking ownership of my sin. I have sinned. And as David says in Psalm 51, I have sinned against God. But my confession must go deeper than that. And it must go to, to the extent to which I'm embracing not what I think of my sin, but what God thinks of my sin. And the very concept of, of confession is saying the same thing as God about my sin. And that's a huge development in your life and in mine. If we go from having just an intellectual acceptance of our sinnership to, to come to God with hearts that embrace exactly what he says about my sin, that we're saying the same things as God about our sin. A major development. It's a child coming to the Father. The child who has done wrong who has seriously offended the Father. It's him coming to the Father 
and recognizing what the Father thinks of the offense and of the sin. And using that description and, and saying to the Father that yes, what I've done wrong is exactly the way that you describe it. I don't understand the seriousness of it myself. Without your words, I couldn't do that. But with your words, now I understand what my sin is. And I come to you because there is in my heart that, that living relationship with you that needs to be revived and refreshed. And that can only take place when this issue of what I've done wrong is resolved. And what a, a turnaround it would be f for you and for me today. If there is any sense of dysfunction or in a relationship with God, if there is an absence of trusting, a living relationship with the Lord Jesus, that we would come to this point and hear the words of God and say the words of God back to him. As someone has said, there's nothing that God has pleasure in more than hearing his own words spoken back to him. Will you today take the word of God and take it in, into, into your heart and recognize that the God who is described in the Old Testament as the one who is of pure eyes and to look upon evil and sin that against that God that you have committed sin you have broken his law as his word says come with that confession but I think of the child coming into the room with his head down in shame coming to, to his father to, to confess his wrongdoing why should he do that? Why would he do that? Why would he not run and fear away from the very person that he has offended? Why would he not want to, to be as much distance as possible from the father whom he has wronged? For the simple reason that he knows his father. He knows his father's character. He knows his father's practice. He knows his father's behavior. And he knows that, that when he comes with the confession of his sin, he's going to meet with someone that's ready to receive. And that's exactly what, what we see in, in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness he is faithful he is just he is forgiving and he restores and makes us new everything that the child has need of the father has, has, has proclaimed his forgiveness that if we do confess that he will not only wash away our, our uncleanness but lift away our sin. And in the Old Testament, there, there, there is a marvelous image of the way in which God puts a distance between us and our sin. 
And in Leviticus chapter 16, on the day of atonement, when the, the, the sacrifice was given and blood was shed to, to cover the sins of, of, of the people of Israel. The sins were, were symbolically laid on, on the scapegoat that was taken into a far-off place from which he was never going to return. The sins were lifted off the people, were placed on the scapegoat, and they were carried away, never again to come back to this people. And here is the forgiveness that comes when, when the father receives and hears the child confessing his or her sin, that in that moment of confession he has promised to lift the sin and to lift the guilt and to lift it in such a way as to separate it from the person confessing so that it never again returns to spoil this relationship. We read in Psalm 32 the way in which David felt his bones were wasting away. You know what it's like when we do something wrong and we're not confessing it. There's not only guilt on our our consciences that we feel burdened and heavy. It robs us of our energy and of our life. And we struggle on and so we will do until such a time as we come to confession. He remained silent and life was a slog. He struggled every day to live until he came and confessed. And the family conversation here brings us to that place where the child is motivated and inspired by the faithful, trustworthy father who is just, remarkably just in forgiving sin and restoring the relationship. The family conversation. It's, it's a return to order. It's, it's a restoring of, of the way in which this family functioned and a restoration that, that washes and cleanses away everything that spoiled the relationship. And there is a beauty on both sides of forgiveness. There is nothing quite like forgiving. True forgiveness melts our hearts if we are giving it. And there's nothing like being forgiven because it melts our hearts when we are forgiven. And and at the risk of of bringing things into the experience of God that that perhaps we should not, I, I think it's fair to say that God has huge delight and God has great pleasure in giving forgiveness to us when we come to him. And that pleasure and that delight finds an echo in our own hearts because we're melted by his love. We're overcome by the greatness and the majesty of the way in which he is able to embrace us despite what we've done against him. And it's at that point when the conversation is silenced not because it was meaningless but because it was meaningful and it came to an end because everything in the conversation was overcome and overwhelmed by a sense of the greatness 
of the love of God. The family conversation. Shouldn't we all come together today to that place before God and discover that for ourselves? To come with words that will ultimately leave us speechless. Adoring the greatness of God, the majesty of his love, and the way in which he washes away our every sin. The family conversation. Secondly, we see that there is a family connection. And the family connection arises from the fact that there is a key person in this family. And we may think that the key person is the father, but as far as the forgiveness is concerned, the key person is the son. In verse 1 of chapter 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. At one level, the advocate is the helper. He comes alongside to help us. In the family, child kind of context, the image is coming to take the child by their hand and taking them to the place where, where the conversation has to take place. It's the helper in that sense. But it is more than the helper. It is the person who comes as, as the legal advisor, who comes into the, the law court to represent me, to take up my case. He does that on my behalf. I don't have the words. I don't have the understanding. I don't have the understanding of, of my sin. I don't have the understanding of God's law. I don't have the understanding of what God requires. I need an advocate. Someone who's familiar with all of the detail of God's law. Someone who's familiar with all the detail of the process of God's law court. And who will take up my case for me in that context. And that's the marvel of, of, of the way in, or the location in which we find this advocate. We have an advocate with the Father. And we might think today that the greatest help we need is right where we are. And in many ways that's true. We need the help of the Spirit of God of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, where we are, to help us with words, to help us with conversation, to help us with worship. Our greatest need in that sense is to have someone here with us. And God has promised that to us. His presence will be with us forever. His Spirit will be in our hearts. Our greatest need is to have someone with us. But there is... One need that surpasses that in its greatness, and it is the need that we have to have someone to represent us in the throne room of God. Where God carries out his government, where God makes his rules, where God decides who are his children. The place from which God's strategy for salvation comes from. 
The place where, where God sits and looks down upon the world and sees every individual in it. The place from which God reigns. That today, God in, in his might and in his power and his great wisdom has appointed that for you and for me. There is an advocate at his right hand and that he is there as the one who lives forever, says the writer to the Hebrews, to make intercession for us, to plead our case before God. And the marvel of, part of the marvel of that is the words that we read in Psalm number 21. That this advocate never fails. There is never a case which is not proven. There is never a case which is thrown out of court. He is an advocate. He is someone who represents me and he's always successful. God, says the psalmist, will not withhold from him anything that he asks in Psalm 21. What a privilege, what a, an honor we have today as we worship God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That that same Lord Jesus Christ is not only on our side, but he is in heaven for us as we come with our sin. And he's taking up our case. And he will be successful as he does so. And as we come in our conversation to confess our sin, he takes it all up into the throne room of God and there. He has a family conversation, a family conference. It's a conference in heaven about you and I down here in the world in the light of the crisis that sin has brought into our experience, the dysfunction that has left us separate from God. There is a conference in heaven between the Father and the Son. And in today, if I want somebody to represent me, I want somebody with a good reputation. I want somebody that I can rely on, in whom I can put my complete trust, that he will carry out everything on my behalf. And here we have the advocate who is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Everything about his reputation makes, it, makes him suitable for my case. He is Jesus, the Son of God. He came into the world. Jesus who walked the face of the earth. Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified on Calvary's cross. He is Jesus. He died for the sins of the world. That's part of his portfolio, part of his reputation that he died on Calvary's cross for my sin. He is the Jesus who is the Christ. He is anointed at God's right hand. He is God's King. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One. God raised Him up from the dead. And because He had paid the price for my sin, He honored Him. He gave Him to sit at His right hand until His enemies were made His footstool. He is Jesus on the cross. He is the Christ on the throne of God. And he is the righteous one. He is righteous. He meets the norms of God's law in his own person. He is perfect and holy in every step that he took. Every word that he uttered. Everything was perfection. 
what he said I could trust it. The words that he spoke were powerful and he spoke with authority from God. He was righteous in all that he said in his life. And he was also righteous in his life giving in the sacrificial offering of himself. If we say that righteousness is obedience, we hear the words of Paul with regard to the Son of God who took on him the form of a servant, that he was obedient even to death on a cross. And therefore, God highly exalted him. His life was righteous. His passion was righteous. Everything that he did had perfection and God honor and God glorifying written all over it. And that's why today, for as we read this letter of John, John wants them to be sure that they understand the centrality of Jesus, the importance of the passion of Jesus and of the work of Jesus that he must be at the center of their lives if they're going to live as the family of God. They have to appreciate who he is and what he is now doing on their behalf. And surely, if we're inspired today to come with our sin to God because we know the Father loves us, Surely we have no excuse today to say that we cannot come because we don't understand our sin or we don't understand our case. Surely we are inspired today because in Jesus Christ we have the person who says, don't worry about your words. Don't worry about how you're going to express yourself. If you come, I'll take up your case for you. And I'll take up your case for you before the throne of God where God has promised me success. How can we stay away? How can we hold on to our sin when the path to have our sins forgiven is not only clear to us but it's a path where everything that we need is provided for by God. A family conference. Thirdly and finally, we have a family consideration. What is the important thing in the whole process? Yes, your sin is very important. Recognizing it is very important. It is the most important thing, the second most important thing in your whole experience that you recognize your sin. the marvel of this family conference and of this family conversation is that the most important thing is not your sin and the most important consideration is the cross of Jesus he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world the propitiation. What does that mean? It's all, all of its depth and all of its complexity. What does it mean? It means that in the wisdom of God, 
Our sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. And because our sin is covered by the blood of Jesus, that the wrath of God is turned away. And once the wrath of God is turned away, there is peace with God. And we, we can think of, of the, the image that the Bible gives to us with regard to the centrality of the cross of Jesus. That because of our sin, we have turned our backs upon God. And because of our sin, God has turned his back upon us. He is angry with us. And nothing can bring us together unless something happens to the wrath of God. And there is nothing that I can do to change that. But, but God provides His Son to die on the cross at Calvary. And when that happens, God's wrath is turned away. And God is turned around. The cross of Jesus is that head-turning moment in the experience of, of the sinner and in the experience of God Himself that God is satisfied in that moment when Jesus says it is finished I have finished the work that you have given me to do propitiation turning away of wrath God accepting the redemption price God pleased with what Jesus did and peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ and the consideration now is wonderful, really. I confess my sin and I come taking ownership of my sin. And in this marvelous transaction that is at the center of this consideration is a place where Jesus takes ownership of my sin. And where God tells me with regard to my sin that the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. That God made him who knew no sin carry our sin, to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. And as I look at the, the cross of Jesus today, which is at the center of the government of God, as I look at the cross of Jesus, I see my sin being carried to him. I see him suffering for my sin. I see the debt being paid. I see the, the, the pen of God across the deficit on my account, I see God saying, it is finished. I see God saying, I accept the work of Jesus and therefore I accept those who are sinners and for whom he died. And when God is today dealing with my sin, Jesus is in there for me who suffered for my sin. And he's not going to say concerning any one of us, oh no, that person, he did not commit such a serious sin. It's not going to be that kind of defense. He's not going to follow the process where he's going to try and excuse you for what, the wrong that you have done. He's going to explain that wrongdoing in a way that you could never. But he's also going to lay before God at God's throne. Do you not remember do you not remember what you said that if I go and if I die for this sinner and for that sinner 
that you'll accept my death on the cross as, as payment, as the turning away of your wrath. Do you not remember that? And on that basis alone, you, you must forgive them because you have promised to forgive them. And the discussion, the, the, there's hardly even a debate. There's no argument because God has stated the process. Not because he needs to be persuaded to forgive you. But in order to highlight the beauty of the way of forgiveness. And so that the cross of Jesus which is at the very center of the life of the Christian going on in this journey through this world, is also at the center of the throne of God. So that the cross of Jesus is unforgettable to you. And of course it is. The cross on whom the King of Glory died, it's unforgettable. If I'm a believer today, I cannot go a step in life without being reminded and without reminding myself the preciousness of Jesus. But also, the cross of Jesus is at the very center of God's own heart and of God's own dealing with his people. And as we read down through this letter, we see that all of this is because of his love. His love that is so far-reaching so downward going in order today that you and I could have hope that there is peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ that we become functional in the family of God with Jesus at the center and putting our trust in him because he ever lives above for me to intercede his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all a race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Hallelujah. Isn't God good? And isn't Jesus Christ a great Savior? May God bless his word. We'll bow our heads in prayer. Almighty and most gracious God, our loving Heavenly Father, we praise and bless your name today for the work of salvation, for the marvel of the wisdom of the way in which you have put such a path together through the passion of your Son so that today we can come to you if fearless because of the way in which you have said that you will wash away our sins and that you will accept us and receive us. So help us to have the fear that is reverence and the fear that is worship but help us to be assured of your love that you will receive us as we do come to you and help us in our coming to you and give us to know your peace and your grace and your love in our hearts both today and always as we pray all of these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Closing Psalm is Psalm 103 and sing Psalms on page 135. Psalm 103 and we're singing at verse number 8 down to 14 verse is 8 to verse 14 the Lord is merciful and kind to anger slow and full of grace he will not constantly reprove or in his anger hide his face 
From verse 8 to verse Mark 14 to God's praise. The Lord is merciful and kind to Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.